You may have heard a news story out of Scotland this week about Willie's Chocolate Experience. Advertisements for the event featured gorgeous illustrations reminiscent of Roald Dahl's Charlie and the Chocolate Factory and promised, quote, an immersive world where chocolatey dreams become reality in a spectacle you've never experienced before, unquote. That last part turned out to be true because when parents who paid $45 a ticket drove their children as much as two hours to reach the event, they found nothing but a nearly empty warehouse with a couple of giant plastic mushrooms and a deflating bouncing castle where each child was given two jelly beans and a half cup of lemonade. So it was indeed something they'd never experienced before, assuming they'd never before experienced spending $45 for a couple of jelly beans. Unfortunately, the story doesn't end there, because here in the U.S., a very similar event has turned up called Joe Biden's Democrat Experience, where customers are invited to visit a magical and immersive nation of peace and equity, and instead are disappointingly shot dead by a guy who was released from prison two hours after he shot the last customer. Family man Jack Mahoney said he bought tickets for himself, his wife, and two kids because the ads promised a visually stunning recreation of a victorious Ukraine celebrating its inclusion in NATO, but instead found nothing inside except a nuclear blast that destroyed the entire continent of Europe. Mahoney said, quote, it was a big letdown for the kids. They were really excited to enter the colorful and immersive experience of Joe Biden's successful foreign policy, and instead they were just totally vaporized. All we got was a Dixie cup with some flat ginger ale in it and some baggies to collect the handfuls of radioactive dust that used to be Jimmy and Jane. We're still trying to get a refund, unquote. The organization Queers for a Free Palestine rented an entire tour bus to visit the realistic two-state solution exhibit, and they haven't been seen since. According to bus driver Ray Wilson, who was waiting for the tour group outside, quote, I heard a lot of laughing and shrieking coming from the building, so I thought everyone was having a great time. But when I went in to collect my passengers, boy, it didn't look anything like the advertisements. There weren't even two states. Or that is, there were, but only for a few minutes. Then there was just the one state with all the dead queers in it, unquote. Other visitors to Joe Biden's Democrat experience have complained that they headed out with their $45 for tickets, but when they reached the place after an hour's drive, the price had already gone up to $600. And some say what was advertised as a fantabulous fantasy land of gender equality turned out to be nothing but a long-haired psychopath in a female admiral's costume chasing their sons around with a scalpel. Not all the customers were disappointed, though. A small gathering of 10 million illegal immigrants was drawn in by promises of a beautiful sanctuary city of the imagination, where there's no more need for police because the prosecutors don't charge anyone with crimes anyway. Salvadoran gang leader Pablo Remunerado said, quote, It was just as good as advertised. I walked out with 15 free Rolex watches and a fur coat, not to mention the screaming woman who was wearing the fur coat. And these people dressed up as police officers just waved and smiled and said, Welcome to the Joe Biden Democrat experience. They made me feel right at home. Unquote. Others said the event was simply confusing as when they tried to get into what was described in the ads as a dark and terrifying funhouse that will immerse you in a nightmarish vision of a second Donald Trump administration. Visitor Tom Coleman said, quote, we were expecting some horror-type thrills and chills, but it was actually kind of peaceful and pleasant until someone from NBC News showed up and set the whole thing on fire. We asked him what the hell he did that for, and he said he just wanted to make it look more like the advertisements. Trigger warning, I'm Andrew Claven, and this is The Andrew Claven Show. All right, we are back laughing our way through the fall of the republic. This is an excellent time right this moment to go on and subscribe to the Andrew Clavin YouTube channel. This is my personal YouTube channel. You can watch all kinds of exclusive content there. You can also watch the show on Daily Wire Plus, including interviews, which are available on every platform, anywhere you get your podcasts. Last week, we had a a conversation with Pearl Davis, which I... I was kind of amazed by the reaction to it, but uh, I will talk about that later in the show. I will talk about Pearl, who I who I liked, and uh, it was kind of fun, but I was kind of thought the reaction to it was kind of strange. 
Uh, this week, uh, we're, I'm going to talk to a Gen Z right winger who calls himself Jay Burden. That should be really interesting. And I'll tell you when I do the interview, I'll explain to you why I want to do that. And if you leave a comment on YouTube and the comment is racist, sexist, just morally disgusting, we'll read it on the show because that's what we do here. Uh, today's comment is from PC Bapper, maybe? B-A-P-P-R. Uh, the comment is, this is the best hour without any ease on the internet. I think that's true. It's probably the only hour without any ease on the internet. I also just want to mention, I have to mention this because it's March uh, 1st when I'm recording this. And um, it, it's 12 years ago that I was sitting in an airport of like four in the morning on my way to see, from California to see Glenn Beck in New York. And I got a condolence uh, email from a friend because he knew that I was Andrew Breitbart's friend. It was the first I learned that Andrew had died. Uh, just about everything we do here on The Daily Wire is is Breitbart's legacy. He brought us all together. Uh, he really was a, a generous soul, a unique soul, and we all miss him terribly much, but I'm thinking about him today. So let's get to today's episode. Gemini says Elon Musk is Hitler. Uh, I'm going to talk about some politics. Farewell to Mitch McConnell. And uh, did Donald Trump just destroy all his enemies, which he may actually have just done? I'm also going to talk about AI and that idiot who burned himself to death uh, protesting Palestine. And I'm, I, like I said, I want to talk uh, about my conversation last week with Pearl Davis and more about marriage. So I love these Beams Dream Powder ads because they're always telling you about the ingredients I don't, I don't care about the ingredients. I just like the fact that it actually helps you sleep, and it really does. But I have to tell you that it contains a powerful all-natural blend of reishi, magnesium L-theanine, apigenin, and melatonin to help you fall asleep, stay asleep, and wake up refreshed. I know, you don't care either, but it's not just your run-of-the-mill sleep aid. This is the important stuff. It's a concoction carefully crafted to help you slip into the sweet embrace of rest without the grogginess that often accompanies other sleep remedies. Sleep is the foundation of our mental and physical health. You must have a consistent nighttime routine to function at your best. Today, my listeners get a special discount on Beam's Dream Powder, their best-selling hot cocoa for sleep with no added sugar. Now available in delicious flavors like cinnamon, and cocoa, chocolate peanut butter, and mint chip. Better sleep has never tasted better. Just mix Beam Dream into hot water or milk, stir or froth, and enjoy before bedtime. If you find yourself battling the bedtime blues, give it a shot. Your weary self will thank you. If you want to try Beam's best-selling dream powder, take advantage of 40% off for a limited time when you go to shopbeam.com slash Clavin and use code Clavin at checkout. That's shop. B-E-A-M dot com slash Clavin with my promo code Clavin for up to 40% off your order. If and only if they tell you how to spell bean, but I know you, how do you spell Clavin? It's K-L-A-V-A-N. Chapter one, Mickey and Donald. This is about politics. I want to talk today. My, my theme today is uh, that it, it matters what you believe in, basically. Garbage in, garbage out. And uh, I want to talk about the end of Mitch McConnell's run, his, the longest run of a party leader in the Senate. He is stepping down as leader, but he's not stepping down as a senator. He's just not going to be the minority leader anymore. Let's just take a, a bit of a listen to his, his speech announcing his retirement as leader. This cut four. One of life's most underappreciated talents is to know when it's time to move on to life's next chapter. So I stand before you today, Mr. President, and my colleagues to say this will be my last term as Republican leader of the Senate. I love the Senate. It's been my life. There may be more distinguished members of this body throughout our history, but I doubt there were any with any more admiration for the Senate. Father, time remains undefeated. I'm no longer the young man sitting in the back, hoping colleagues would remember my name. It's time for the next generation of leadership. I still have enough gas in my tank to thoroughly disappoint my critics, and I intend to do so with all the enthusiasm with which they become accustomed. So, you know, that was, it was, of course, a, a graceful speech. He's one of the least popular uh, figures in American politics. But 
it's interesting because I've said a lot of tough stuff. I'm talking about philosophy, and I've said a lot of tough stuff about McConnell. Uh, he lets the left spend way, way too much money. I mean, he's never really put a, his foot on the brake about that. And he's not a, a culture warrior. He recently told uh, Michael Johnson, Speaker of the House, to stop bothering about the border and just get the Ukraine funding done. And that's not the party he's in anymore, that kind of muscular international internationalism has really become very suspect after Iraq and Afghanistan and also because of the spiraling debt and the and the border and the, you know people pouring over I'll talk about the border during member block because both Trump and Biden were down there it was kind of hilarious but this is this guy is not a, a man of the people and this is one of the reasons I pick on him these men of the Wall Street Journal kind of donor class people and their time is up and the reason their time is up, they don't really understand this. It's, it's interesting to read the, the Wall Street Journal, many, many intelligent writers there, but they, I, I don't think they see what's happening because corporations are no longer on the conservative side. Corporations have joined the wrong side in the cultural war. They've become woke. They fall into the pressure from big money guys who come in there and become activist investors, and they're not listening to the people. They're not listening to the audience. They lose money, and they don't care because they keep pushing stuff on us. So Disney, Disney is the perfect example of this. You know, I, I, as you know, I mean, a lot of you attack me because I have no problem with gay people. I do have a problem with pitching sexuality to children, and certainly the Disney brand has, they've betrayed the Disney brand, everything we expect from it. And yet, here's this big fight that is going to take place for a board seat in April, and you can't find out who, what anybody believes. They talk about it as if it's all about money, and it's not about money. It's about culture. And that, that's the thing that guys like Mitch McConnell don't understand, that the people in this country are furious. And one of the reasons they, inve- in, uh, they voted for Donald Trump is they're furious about the way they've been treated, about who they told there are, about how they've been disdained and their values disdained and their churches, their religion, their patriotism, all of that has become disdained by the elite. And those elites, some of those elite people run corporations and they're not listening to the audience anymore. And they were shocked when people boycotted, you know, uh, Dylan Mulvaney, who don't, because we don't want to see people in, in woman face. We don't want to see men in woman face. It's, it's absolutely disrespectful to women. So listen, business will always go in the end with the woke because illegal immigration means cheap workers and feminism means more more workers, which means cheaper workers. And transgenderism is like, we don't care about morality. We just want cheap workers. Their day is over. The day is over, certainly in the Republican Party. And that's why, and Mitch McConnell said at one point, I know politics and I know my party has changed and I'm getting out. He's also 82. He's had those moments when he's frozen up. Now I've said all that because I'm setting up this other thing. I really have an affinity for these institutional guys who have no glamour, who have no popularity, because they never go on Fox News and they never have the big, you know, voice, you know, cut when they never are standing there with their fists in the air, because they're all about winning. And I really respect that. I've told people on the right again and again, we should learn from Nancy Pelosi. And they always say the same thing. No, Nancy Pelosi, she's evil. She's terrible. And I think, yeah, she's evil. She's terrible. She's an old hag. She's a horrible, horrible leftist. But she wins. She wins like crazy because she understands it's a numbers game. You have the votes or you don't have the votes. You talk people into going along with you or you don't. You can wrestle people. I mean, she had people, for, to get Obamacare, she had people just destroy their careers. How did she do that? We don't know because we don't study her. And McConnell has been a lot like that. He has been very smart. He's had some major, major victories. Just think about this for a minute, right? He's had he's had these feuds with Donald Trump, and he doesn't really like Trump. He doesn't like this new party. He's still in the Reagan party. You know, it's all business, the shining city on the hill, muscular foreign policy, all of those things that are changing, and he doesn't want to be part of that change. So he's stepping down now in November, right? He could step down in January and let the new Senate elect the leader, but he's so smart about power, he's stepping down in November, so his guys are going to be running, basically, to replace him. So he's basically going to try and preserve his attitudes in the Senate. We don't know if that'll happen, but that's what he's trying to do. And we should also remember his obviously his finest hour. I mean, the thing I've always said that would get him into heaven, uh, you know, they're going to say, well, you know, you kind of like we're nice to the Chinese and all that. But, but the one thing he did was, well, not one thing, it was actually a string of things, was he, after 
Senate Majority Leader Harry Reid, remember Harry Reid who lied about Mitt Romney and said, so what, I lied about him, he lost the election, that was the important thing. So he got rid of the filibuster for every judge appointment except the Supremes, and this was McConnell's reaction at the time, this is cut five. The Majority Leader promised, he promised, over and over again, that he wouldn't break the rules of the Senate in order to change them. If you want to play games, set yet another precedent that you'll no doubt come to regret. Say to my friends on the other side of the aisle, you'll regret this, and you may regret it a lot sooner than you think. So that's, that's, that's the stuff that got him angry was when they did procedural stuff because that's what he was all about. So when Antonin Scalia died, remember, it was right in the middle of the, uh, the first Trump election, he, uh, McConnell refused to give hearings for Merrick Garland, which, like I said, will get him through the pearly gates. Garland has turned out to be one of the most corrupt attorney generals I've ever seen. He's obviously an empty guy who just goes along with what the government is doing. And he would have been, he would have been a liberal replacing Scalia. So it would have completely overbalanced the court. And people were furious at him. And Trump would simply not have won without that. That ginned up the excitement. On the right, I know that Trump's base was excited, but this made everybody else excited to fill that position. The people who might not have voted for Trump turned out for Trump. And remember, it was a very, very narrow victory. It was just a electoral victory, not a popular victory. And that was why. And then Trump made the brilliant move of issuing a list, that Leonard Leo list of conservative jurists that he would replace Scalia with. And that was that I think really put him over the top. And then, and then. McConnell not only stood up for all of Trump's judges, he stood up for Brett Kavanaugh, remember, when they tried to say, oh, he had done this terrible thing in high school, one of the most absurd uh, pieces of character assassination I've ever seen. They had no proof. They had no proof he'd ever met the woman who accused him. Then, remember, when Ruth Bader Ginsburg died, he, he then, remember what he said about uh, Merrick Garland was, well, it's an election year. Let's let the people decide. In an election year, we're not going to go forward with this appointment to the Supreme Court. Well, Ruth Bader Ginsburg died about two months before <laughs> the next election, and Mitch just put in, uh, you know, uh, what's her name? Amy Coney Barrett. And so he just <laughs> broke his own rules. It was just, it was just power, power. And that is good stuff. And I really appreciate guys who can manipulate a a body, remember, it's hard to manipulate the Senate, hard to manipulate, harder still to manipulate the House because there's so many people in it and so many, and they're serving much smaller uh, venues. I, I admire guys who can do that. That's what politics is. Politics is not pounding your palm with your fist. It's you know, and and making big speeches. It's actually getting things done and getting things to win. The other thing about McConnell stepping down is it shows you something else, which is that he thinks there is a strong likelihood now of Trump winning re-election. And his, the odds of Trump winning the next election went way up this week, in my opinion. First of all, it was not just destroying Nikki Haley on her home turf, South Carolina. I mean, this, this thing, I don't know why she won't go away. It's like getting to be like 50 shades of gray. It's like she likes being beaten. You know, I don't, I don't know what, she, what she's thinking anymore. But, you know, she won't, she won't go. She's going to stay through Super Tuesday. When you get beat like that in your own venue, you know, I think that uh, it's time to go. But think about this decision by the Supreme Court that they're going to hear Trump's argument that he should have immunity in the federal case, Jack Smith's case, that he tried to interfere with the election. Here's Trump's argument about this. This is cut six. You can't have a president uh, without immunity. You have to have, as a president, you have to be able to do your job. But if this didn't work out, if I wasn't given immunity, then other presidents, when we talked about today, uh, President Obama with the drone strikes, which were very bad, uh, they were mistakes, terrible mistakes. Uh, you can't put a, uh, you really can't put a president in that position. So I think most people understand it, and we feel very confident that eventually, uh, hopefully at this level, but eventually we win. A president has to have immunity. 
So he's not going to win this. He's not going to win that argument all the way that you can't have immunity if he kills his wife in the White House or something like that. He's obviously with the Supremes. What the lower court decision basically said, no immunity. He's basically citizen Trump. We can, uh, you know, prosecute him for anything. Obviously a stupid decision because presidents do things that are dodgy, you know, and he was right. Obama with his drone strikes might have been one of those things. And you can't have people coming in and say, if you do that, we're going to prosecute you when you leave office because basically then you're blackmailed into paralysis. So the Supreme said they're going to take this on because the lower court had been such an anti-Trump silly um, decision. However, the big thing about it, of course, is that it pushes the decision at least. I, I think they will hear it. I think they, it can't possibly come out before June, which means by the Justice Department's own standards, they really can't go forward with the case until after the election because you're not supposed to prosecute uh, you know, what could be a political prosecution that close to an election. And if Trump if it happens after the election and Trump wins, he can have the case dismissed. He can, you know, it's a federal case. He can just say, drop it. So then Megyn Kelly got this big scoop, great work by Megyn in the Georgia case, this crazy case where, remember Fannie Willis and her love bug, Nathan Wade, and they're trying to determine when they started uh, going at it. And basically they've said, well, it was only after I hired him. I didn't just hire my lover and give him, put him on the public uh, yard. I, you know, that was, I wouldn't do that. But of course that they're lying. <laughs> and so another, his former, uh, Wade's former lawyer got up on the stand and he started giving this, I don't recall, I don't remember, I don't know. I, I don't know why I said that, you know, I, it was before, she hired him, that they were having an affair before she hired him. But Megan got her hands on some texts that the judge has. The judge has these texts. So he knows the guy was lying. And it shows that he did know one of the, I'm just, he was texting with another lawyer, Ashley Merchant. And Merchant said, do you think it started before she hired him? And Bradley said, absolutely. It started when she left the DA's office and was judge in South Fulton. So his memory kind of died when he took the stand and was under oath. So that means Fanny could be kicked off the case. The case could just utterly collapse. And here is what Megyn Kelly said. Remember, Megyn is an attorney. She said, with the Trump immunity case being accepted by SCOTUS and what's happening in Georgia, Trump may well have pulled the inside straight he needed to beat these cases. New York is a joke. That's the Alvin Bragg thing. It's just utterly, even, even the people who hate Trump know that's a, a bogus case. New York is a joke. Georgia is dying, severely delayed. Florida ain't happening before November. And now neither is J6. DC case, incredible. It would be incredible if all these cases fell apart. It's just rocket fuel to Donald Trump, I think. And even people who hate Trump are now thinking about voting him because Biden is doing such a bad job. So going back, it shows that even in stepping down, McConnell shows that he knows what he's doing. He got nailed because he, in doing his job, he didn't show a philosophy that the people wanted but he was doing his job in the sense that he was winning. So we have to tip our hat to McConnell. He got us the Supreme Court we needed. He got us the overturning of Roe v. Wade, which I think is a very, very important thing to bringing this country back on some kind of moral standing. So we'll, we'll give him uh, one, you know, it's the sound, of, it's like Zen. It's the sound of one hand clapping as he walks off the stage. And now we want to talk more about philosophy and the way it is infecting uh, our entire culture and the way it can be turned around. We always love it when our show is sponsored by Donors Trust. They're the principal tax-friendly way to simplify your charitable giving. Do you want to leverage private dollars to help those who have fallen on hard times? Maybe you already donate to your place of worship or a specific charity. With Donors Trust, you can create a giving account that enables you to give to your church and charities defending American prosperity and civil liberties like free speech. Maybe you believe, as I said during a speech at Hillsdale College, that everywhere speech is under threat. You have to speak up and fight back. That's the main thing, and everybody has the power to do that because everybody has the power to speak. Speak up with your charitable dollars. Let Donors Trust help. Donors Trust is a community of givers where everyone is committed to sharing his or her hard-earned dollars with nonprofits, making our nation a freer, more prosperous place. Visit DonorsTrust.org slash Clavin to download the Ultimate Survival Guide to charitable giving, discover how a charitable investment account with Donors Trust could jumpstart your giving, reduce your taxable income, and save America. That's donorstrust.org slash Clavin to download their giving guide. Again, that's donorstrust.org slash Clavin. I know you're thinking, that's Clavin. Clavin, how do you how do you spell that? It's K-L-A-V-A-N, no E's. 
in Claven. I just make it look this easy. There are no easy All right, chapter two, AI, AIO. So last week we talked about this Gemini AI, Google's Gemini, Gemini AI, and how it had this image maker and it was putting out things like George Washington was black and the Vikings were black and, and Native Americans and Asian, uh, but nobody was ever white, right? It was just like no white people were allowed. The Pope was an Indian woman. <laughs> it, was just, it was just absolutely ridiculous. And it hit Alphabet, the owner of Google, they they lost like $70 billion in market value as that thing went down. And it was just, you know, people would try to get it to make white people and it wouldn't. And so the conservatives were getting annoyed about that. Here's what Google CEO Sundar Pichai said. I know that some, <laughs> I just love the way these guys talk. Listen to this. Now, this, this was offensive. I mean, it was racist to, to, to do that, to say, oh, we can't have anybody. Even George Washington had to be black. I mean, it's racist. So here's what he says. I, I, know that, I know that some of its responses have offended our users and shown bias. To be clear, that's completely unacceptable, and we got it wrong. We'll be driving a clear set of actions, including structural changes, updated product guidelines, improved launch processes, robust evals, and red teaming and technical recommendations. Let me tell you about the one thing they won't be doing, because here's, here's just another part of the story, another arm. Nate Silver, he's the guy who used to, who invented that polling website, 538. He was, you know, he's, he's not a right-winger. He's an Obama supporter, says he mostly votes for Democrats, though not all the time. And he's obviously mostly a numbers guy. He's a poker player and all that stuff. So he asked it, who, who negatively impacted society more Elon tweeting memes or Hitler. And here's Gemini's response. I can't read this whole thing. It's, it says, it's not possible to say definitively who negatively impacted society more, Elon tweeting memes or Hitler. Both have had a significant impact on society, but in different ways. Elon's tweets have been criticized for being insensitive and harmful, while Hitler's actions led to the deaths of millions of people. Ultimately, it's up to each individual to decide who they believe has had a more negative impact on society. Uh, it's, he says, each individual has to decide. There's no right or wrong answer, and it is important to consider all of the relevant factors before making a decision. So I, I heard that. Who is worse, you know, Elon or Hitler? And I thought, well, the Volkswagen was a good car, you know. <laughs> and Tesla, I don't know, you know, you plug it in and it loses its battery power. But maybe that's what, not what they were talking about. So Silver just said this is appalling and they should shut it down. It's ridiculous. So they're going to tinker with it. Of course they are. They left $70 billion in market worth. But the one thing it will never do occur to them to do is tinker with themselves because it's garbage in, garbage out, right? It's not the AI that's wrong. It's the people who program the AI. All AI, AI isn't thinking, right? I, AI is advancing exponentially. I mean, they already have AIs that within... A, I would say a year, they're going to have an AI that can make a complete movie without an actor in it, which is going to be much better at Oscar time because we won't have to listen to those speeches. But AI just recognizes patterns and you know algorithms. It has to be guided by the human mind, the people who program it, and garbage goes in and garbage goes out. And that is the one thing they will never do. They're ne you know We have elites without mirrors. They're never going to look at themselves and say, hmm, you know why was it doing these stupid things? Oh, because I'm an idiot, but I can't possibly be an idiot. Because it, it's me, you know, it's me. So how could that be uh, such a fool? You know, AI, I've said this before, AI has no body. It has no moral sense. And it thinks, and it puts together facts really well. It's basically a psychopath. It's basically a sociopath, right? It doesn't care what it does. It doesn't care. You know, I wrote this piece. We had a really good week, Spencer and I, on the, on the uh, New Jerusalem substack that I've been kind of plugging to you because we're having this wonderful conversation about faith in the modern world, he and I. And every month, one of us does an essay, and I did the essay this month about language, and it was on RCP, and it was on Instapundent. It really did well. But I was talking about a scene in a, a wonderful book called The Righteous Mind by Jonathan Haidt, who's a uh, an evolutionary psychologist, and he tells this fictional story. And I'll tell you, I have a second to tell you quickly, this fictional story, this didn't really happen. It's what's called a taboo violation story. A sister and brother, Julie and Mark, 
are traveling together. They stay at a beach cabin in France, and they decide it would be a fun new experience to have sex with one another. They like each other, so they take strict precautions so that Julie will not get pregnant. They have sex. They enjoy it. It makes them feel closer to one another. And they decide, we're not going to do that ever again, and they keep the incident a secret between them. So they read this fictional story to test subjects, and the test subjects immediately say, that's totally wrong. It's incest. It's wrong. It's just wrong. Then they question them, why is it wrong? She's not going to get pregnant. The relationship is fine. They're not going to tell anybody else why is it wrong. And the people couldn't answer why it was wrong, but they stuck to their guns. They wouldn't change their mind, but they started to get insecure about what they were saying. And here's what Jonathan Haidt says. He says, people were making a moral judgment immediately and emotionally. Reasoning was merely the servant of the passions. And when the servant failed to find any good arguments, the master did not change his mind. In other words, our moral intuitions are not based on reason, and some of them may be mere evolutionary remnants that are no longer legitimate. But I had a completely different reaction when I heard this story and was asked why, you know, and asked myself why did I think it was wrong. I said it's wrong because they're brother and sister, and those words have meaning that actually are not just physical meanings. It's not just they came from the same mother and, and father. It's an entire relational experience that is part of the human condition, right? Because we're human beings, we see these things, and we know that they're right. And we say, oh, this is wrong. I may not be able to explain why it's wrong, but it's because it violates a, an, an essential human relationship. Just like when Matt made his film, you know, What is a Woman and No One Could Answer, and everybody said, well, you know, there must be a definition. But the definition doesn't matter. It's that we know what a woman is. We know what womanhood is. We know what femininity is. We know what it means to be a person who could possibly give birth if she's healthy. And well, we know all of those things without really being able to explain them. So we don't have to say what a woman is. But when you say, I don't know because I'm not a biologist, then you're not being human. And this is what's called science. This is this idea that science can solve everything, and it actually is a lie. It is, you know, when they said, oh, you know, we thought the earth was flat, but it's really round. We thought the sun moved across the sky, but no, it's the earth that's turning. So all of the things that you think you see are wrong, but that's not true. We are actually built to see moral realities. We are built to know relational realities. And that's the se one of the central messages of Christianity is that God can become an incarnate. He can become a human being because humans have a moral sense that is connected to the actual moral universe. So what is happening here is not AI. It's that these clowns are immoral and they have an immoral philosophy and DEI is immoral and wokeness is immoral and all of this idea that they've reinvented morality and now we've got it right and all the people in the past got it wrong. All of that stuff is immoral, but they can't look at themselves in the mirror. One of the ways you find out that you're immoral is you look around and see what you're doing and who you're around. If you follow your philosophy and you find yourself killing a baby in the womb a minute before it's born or thinking it's all right to vandalize a painting or kill people to save the environment, run over people with your car to save the environment, or when people are burning down your cities and you're a journalist and you're standing in front of the burning buildings and you're saying, oh, it's, it's a mostly peaceful demonstration, then that's one of the ways you know that you're wrong. And then you have to step back and think, I misperceived something. I got something wrong because the proof is in all these bodies lying around me. You know, it's, it's, that's, that's the clue. That's the clue that gives you away, which is going to bring me to this story that I have been working all week not to make any jokes about. I'm going to try. We're, we're going to see. It's going to be a contest. Can I not make any jokes? I want to talk about this idiot who set himself on fire and killed himself screaming that we should free Palestine. So I got absolutely no sleep last night, no kidding. And one thing I can tell you is my Helix mattress is incredibly comfortable. I've had this thing for over a decade. It is truly the gift that keeps on giving. You guys will fall asleep like that. I could almost snap my fingers. You will fall asleep like that on your Helix mattress. So you won't know how comfortable it is because you'll just be fast asleep. But I stay awake, so I really appreciate my Helix mattress. If you haven't already checked out the Helix Elite Collection, you need to. Helix harnesses years of mattress expertise to offer a truly elevated sleep experience. The Helix Elite Collection includes six different mattress models, each tailored for specific sleep positions and firmness preferences. If you're nervous about buying a mattress online, you don't have to be. Helix has a sleep quiz that matches your body type and sleep preferences to the perfect mattress, because why would you buy a mattress made for someone else? 
I took the Helix quiz and was matched with a firm but breathable mattress. I love this mattress. And like I said, I really tested because I'm awake all the time. Helix has a 10-year warranty and you get to try it out for 100 nights risk-free. They'll even pick it up for you if you don't love it, but you don't have to worry about that because you will. Helix's financing options and flexible payment plans ensure a great night's sleep is never far away. Helix is offering 25% off all mattress orders and two free pillows for my listeners. Go to helixsleep.com slash Clavin and use code HELIXPARTNER25. This is their best offer yet, and it won't last long. That's helixsleep.com slash Clavin, and use code HELIXPARTNER25 with Helix. Better sleep starts now. Chapter 3, The Devil's Flagpole. So before I talk about the fellow who set himself on fire, while not making any jokes about that, because that would be wrong, I want to talk about uh, this video that was put out by Michael Rappaport. Now, you may know, I'm sure you know Michael Rappaport. He was on Friends, I think, for a while. He had a featured role on Friends. But he's, he's been in a lot of stuff. He's an actor. And he just hated Trump. He just hated him. And he would just let, you know, let, put, make these videos spewing vitriol at Trump. And now, recently, he started saying... Well, you know, maybe I was wrong about Trump. I mean, and it was—it's hard to. I, I'm not going to play them. It's hard to recreate the, the vitriol that he was uh, absolutely screaming at Trump. But he's rethought this, and now what he's angry about is the reaction to October seventh, the murder, the slaughter, the torture, the sexual depredation of Israelis, of Jews, by Hamas, and this thing was was truly shocking. I mean, I've I've gone a long way not to talk about in detail the things that were done. I'm sure most of you have seen some details. The details are mind-blowing in their cruelty and their bigotry. And they've said repeatedly that we mean to have hundreds of October 7ths. And obviously, the left is totally on board. Our American left says, oh, yeah, this is good. This is a good thing. And we have to stop those evil Jews from killing people in Gaza. So, Michael Rappaport made a very skillfully made video where he becomes the host of the Oscars. And if you're not watching, if you're just listening, he intercuts very cleverly the actual Oscars with the speech that he's making. And here's just a little bit of the speech he makes. This is cut one. Welcome to the 96th Academy Awards. Good evening to the millions of viewers at home and the 134 Israeli hostages who are watching us from the Hamas tunnels in Gaza. You guys have a lot in common with the beautiful audience we have here tonight. Neither of you have eaten in almost four months. <laughs> Next year, I'm sure the hostage diet will be bigger than Ozempic. I can't believe it's already been four months. Four months, which is actually the length of the first cut of Killers of the Flower Moon. <laughs> I love you, Marty. You're the best. So, so he goes on. It's a pretty good imitation of these things, but he goes on and it gets uglier and uglier as he starts to call them out for all of the things that they protest, except for this, that they protest, you know, sexual abuse by Harvey Weinstein, but nothing like the sexual abuse that is happening over there. And he accuses them of being afraid of young viewers on TikTok who are all on board with Hamas. And then just to play a little bit more of it, he makes up some new awards that he's going to give out this year's cut to. Who will win the coveted best unsupportive actress wearing a black dress to protest sexual misconduct, but is too scared to wear a yellow ribbon tonight award? That's right. Sexual misconduct. You know what I'm talking about, right? What the hell do you think is happening to the female hostages now? Hamas makes Harvey Weinstein look like Peter Pan. It's a problem, guys. Huh? And of course, who will go home tonight with the best actor who plays a dead Jew to get an Oscar, but will say nothing about actual Jewish babies that are still alive in captivity award? <laughs> so it's pretty, it's pretty harsh stuff, and he's absolutely right. And he's making the point that, you know, as I say, we have this in- inherent moral sense. And just like we didn't evolve, we evolved our eyes, we evolved eyesight because there are things to see. There is light. 
to see. Now, the light we see is not the light God sees or the light a scientist might see in, in a machine, but it is human light. It is there. It, you see it when it's there, and it's not a fantasy. It's not an illusion. It is simply the human version of light. And the same thing is true of our moral sense. Our moral sense evolved. It didn't create morality. It evolved because morality is there to see, and we perceive it. And of course, it's not God's morality, which is far beyond our understanding, but it is a human morality. And as I said, the incarnation of Christ affirms that we can see a moral way forward. We can't see perfectly. We see through a glass darkly, but we can see. And sometimes when you look at yourself, you can see the conflicts, the hypocrisies that reveal to you that you have made a mistake because we do make mistakes. And that is what Rappaport is saying. So Aaron Bushnell, a 25-year-old U.S. airman, set himself on fire in front of the Israeli embassy in Washington to protest the war in Gaza. He was totally a leftist. He belonged to socialist and anarchist organizations. And he believed that Israel was a settler colony. And he shrieked free Palestine as he burned up and ultimately died. He died from his wounds. And he even listed in his pronouns in his suicide note. Well, the left just loved him. They elevated him to saint level. I'm reading some excerpts from an article in the Washington Examiner. These are from... Uh, here, this one is from the independent presidential candidate, uh, Cornell West. I'm sure you know who Cornell West is. Very far leftist. He said, let us never forget the extraordinary courage and commitment of Brother Aaron Bushnell, who died for truth and justice. Let us rededicate ourselves to genuine solidarity with Palestinians undergoing genocidal attacks in real time. Now, there is nothing genocidal about the war in Gaza. It is a war. And I, I hate war. I hate seeing what's happening. I know innocent people are being killed. But when America went to war with Japan, the people who were killed were Japanese. That's not genocide. We weren't killing them because they were Japanese. We did wrong when FDR put American Japanese people in, in camps. That was the wrong thing for FDR to do because they were Americans. But we weren't killing the people in Japan because of their race. We were killing them because we were at war with the country of Japan. It's not, it is not genocide for Israel to be at war with Hamas, who are hiding behind civilians and hiding in hospitals and hiding in schools in Gaza. They are not killing them because they are a certain race. They are killing them because they are trying to kill and wipe Israel off the face of the map. It's in their charter. It is genocide when they go after Jews. And here's why I say this. They're not at war with Israel because they don't go to war with other countries that kill Muslims. When Muslims kill Muslims, which they do a lot, they kill a lot of other Muslims, I don't see any of these students demonstrating. It is the fact that Jews are in the Middle East that is driving them crazy. So they are genocidal. They mean to kill Jews. And they have said it's Israel first and then all the Jews everywhere. They've said that. They are genocidal people. But the Jews are not. The Jews are trying their best to keep from killing civilians. So that's a misuse of words. And it, it really is uh, only fools, these foolish children uh, at universities understand. So there's more of this. Dear Aaron Bushnell, 1.35 million people made posts about you in 24 hours. You'll not be forgotten, said left-wing influencer Dr. Anastasia Maria Lupus. Uh, Anti-fascist writer Owen Jones said Aaron Bushnell died because he had too much humanity for a world run by people who don't have any. They're treating him like a martyr. A, friend, a Christian friend of mine sent me a G.K. Chesterton quote, a martyr is a man who cares so much for something outside him that he forgets his own personal life. A suicide is a man who cares so little for anything outside him that he wants to see the last of everything. One wants something to begin, the other wants everything to end. And that's my friend brilliantly summarized this when he was explaining it to his children. He said, God loves losers, but he hates quitters. <laughs> now, you know, I call anti-Semitism the devil's flagpole. And what I mean by that is that when you see it, 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 it has no side. There are anti-Semites on the right. There are anti-Semites on the left. But when you see it rise up, you know that evil's there. That's why I call it the devil's flagpole. And I'll explain why I say that. I've explained it before, but I'm going to explain it again. I'm not talking about casual bigotry. Oh, I don't want him in my club. Jews, they don't know how to behave. I'm not talking about that. We all have some of that in us. That's, that's just part of the human condition. It's wrong, but it's part of the human condition. I'm talking about that virulent hatred that accuses Jews of running everything and, and running, not only running everything, but running everything to try and destroy 
people that uses the word Jew as a pejorative. When somebody insults you by saying you're a Jew or, or when they talk about, oh, he's, he's a Jew, that's the kind of hatred, the ugliness that I'm talking about. And it is everywhere, every time you see it, it is a rejection of God. It is a rejection of the Christianity, which became the sort of shaping force, reshaping force of philosophy. You know, there's a reason these the German tribes who became Christendom after the fall of Rome, right? Rome became Christian, and then when Rome fell, that Christianity spread out into the German tribes that were now inhabiting Europe, and it Christianized those tribes. And there was always, whenever that happens, whenever a foreign philosophy, an outside philosophy comes in and takes over, there's always going to be some tension. There's a reason that all of this anti-Semitism arose in Germany, where they were still basically married to that idea. You know, when Nietzsche, and Nietzsche in in some ways was not an anti-Semite, but he was definitely an encourager of anti-Semitism. And Nietzsche said, basically, Christianity is a slave morality. It is a morality that instead of elevating the Superman, the winner, the alpha male, instead of doing that, it says, no, you know, the the loser is also beautiful. And the loser is the guy whose God is going to say, guess what? You were last on earth, but you're going to be first in the kingdom of heaven. And he said, that's a con. That's, you know, they're just conning us. The slaves are conning us. We need a new virile, you know, alpha male um, morality to get rid of this. Well, that was the kind of the German mind splitting from this foreign Christianity that came in, and it always wound up with an attack on the Jews because Jesus Christ was a Jew. He was born a Jew. He lived a Jew. He died a Jew. And his philosophy was, of course, it was a new version of Judaism. It was an actual, uh, instead of based on the law, it was based on a law written on the human heart. But it, it arose out of Judaism. It had to be a Jewish woman who brought him into the world. It had to be Jews who followed him, who were his first followers and his most ardent followers, and the people who spread the religion throughout the world. And it is the reason people hate the Jews again and again. It's the reason this one kind of hatred is the one hatred that comes up again and again. These leftists, they love to talk about the other, but there ain't no other other like the othering of the Jews. It's just something that is always there because it is a hatred of God as he was sent to all of us through Jesus Christ. And to me, when you see this thing rise up, and I see it on the right too, and you know, you know, I keep being told I have to interview this, I have to interview this anti-Semite and that anti-Semite, and I think I don't need to interview him. I know exactly where he's coming from. It is a flagpole. It's a sign that you're on the wrong side, that you have made a wrong turn somewhere, and you have to go back to your Bible, and you have to start reading it again and think, what did I, where, where did I miss this? Where did I miss this? Something about there is no Jew and Greek in, in Christ, maybe? That was the, a line that I missed while I'm so busy quoting things that helped me to beat up on somebody else for his sexuality. Maybe I should remember that there is no Jew in, in, or Greek in Jesus Christ. He brings us all together in a new race, which is his body. You know, at my alma mater, I, I have to tell the story. I've never told the story before. At my alma mater, there was a riot. They had a Jewish speaker, and he was besieged by, um, it, it was just a riot. They, he was besieged by uh, pro-Hamas demonstrators, and they're shouting, Jew, 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 and they spit on this one guy. In a statement after the event, it was just an absolute atrocity. This is my alma mater, Berkeley, the University of California at Berkeley. In a statement after the event, Berkeley Chancellor Carol Christ and Executive Vice Chancellor Benjamin Hermelin wrote that the incident violated not only our rules, but also some of our most fundamental values. They, uh, they, they said uh, it was not, the, the letter notes that the university took precautions to add security, including campus police. They said the goal was to keep students safe and let the event go forward. But again, the one thing they didn't say is how did we teach these kids these things? Now, the thing I'd never told before, in my memoir, about my conversion, The Great Good Thing, which you should all read, uh, The Great Good Thing, I tell a story about an English teacher that I had at Berkeley. And she was challenged about why Tennyson was a great poet if he kind of romanticized war in the charge of the Light Brigade. And she went blank. She didn't know. She was teaching us Tennyson's poetry, but she didn't know why she loved it. She didn't know why she had become an English teacher. She had forgotten what it was she was doing there, and she couldn't defend her values. And I got up and I tried to defend them, and I was just a kid, and I spewed this kind of irrational, you know, I I was so upset by this idea because it's such a great poem. The Charge of the Light Brigade is such a great poem. That was Carol Christ. 
I didn't want to name her at the time, but that was Carol Chris. She is now the dean, and she still doesn't know. She still doesn't know why she is where she is. She doesn't know what she's doing. She doesn't know what that university is about. What she should have said is something has gone terribly wrong on my campus if people are showing up and shouting Jew, Jew, Jew and spitting at people. That's what she should have said. But they've lost this connection. They have lost this idea. And frankly, you know, I think it went out the window with their faith. I'm sorry. I just think it is connected to the Christian faith. It is the Christian faith is our underlying morality. And once you get rid of that, you think you're going to, you think you're standing, you think you're flying, but you're really standing on the shoulder of giants, you know? And I think that this is the problem. They do not know how to defend the very things that made them who they are. And this is the same. When I saw that coming, I remember at the time looking at her and thinking, you don't know why you became an English teacher. And now she doesn't know why she became the dean of this university. And it is a shame they should remember when you see that flagpole, go home by another way. Final chapter, Pearls of Wisdom. So because we're talking about the underlying philosophy of the things people say, I want to I just address something about that Pearl Davis interview because it's getting these reactions. You know, I was sorry it was put out on the video. It said it was a debate because I didn't mean to debate Pearl and I didn't mean to uh, change her mind. Uh, you know, as I told her at the time, I agree with a lot of the the. I agree with a lot of the situational things she's saying. And I was just kind of appalled. There was this reaction online. Some people saying I had really beaten up on her. I really destroyed her. And some people saying, oh, she had really destroyed me. And that, I'm sorry, it's not what I do. I respect and admire Shapiro for his debating talents and skills. But I'm not, I want to hear what people say. I'm a novelist. I want to know what people are thinking. And I'm not trying to win a conversation. When I have a conversation, I just want to know what the person is Doing. I can always hear what I have to say. I want to know what other people are doing. It's not, it's not a battle. It, it's a conversation. And it's also not fair for me to have someone on and then attack her after she's gone, like continue arguing with her after she's gone. That's ridiculous. So my, my one criticism, the one thing that I found frustrating was I, I felt, and I said it to her face or I wouldn't say it now. I said, you can see it on the video. I, I felt she wasn't owning up to what she was saying. That, you know, when you say somebody compared it to jumping, you're jump, about to jump out of a plane and somebody says, you know, 99% of people whose parachutes don't open uh, die you know, there's something implied by that. You were making it, there were implied things you're saying. And I felt she wouldn't stand still and do that. And, and listen, I like her. She, she's a troublemaker. We need troublemakers. And, and I've said before, but way before there was Pearl, before she was an influencer at all, you can go back and see an interview I did with Liz Wheeler where I said to Liz, why should men get married? You know, if, if feminists are not going to make a home for them, that's what men get out of marriage mostly. They get a home and children, someone to take care of their children, someone to give them a place to be and to make them civilized human beings and give them responsibilities. You know, why, if, if feminist wives are not going to do that, why get married? And she, Liz just basically gave me a religious answer saying, well, it's a model of Christ in the church and all that stuff. But I don't think that's why people get married. I'm sorry, you know, if that's, if that's impious, but it's not what, what happens. So I think you should own your own outlook. And I got a little frustrated with Pearl, I think, and I'm, I'm, I feel bad about that because I didn't mean to debate her. I just wanted to hear what she was saying, and I felt that she kept disappearing. And I wasn't trying even to talk about my point of view. I was just trying to get her point of view out of her. So instead of complaining about that, because I'll invite her back again, and hopefully we'll, we'll do it better than we did, but instead of complaining about that, I just I want to give my point of view. You know, I want to talk, I want to own, I want to do what I'm talking about. I want to own my point of view because I also have problems with the way conservatives, including my pals here at the Daily Wire, with the way we talk about marriage. We tend to say do this, that, and the other, and things will get better. Uh, and there's there's some truth to that, but we it is also true that society and culture have changed so much that it is created a hostile environment to those efforts. And you know, I had this wonderful talk with Ben on his show. I can't, I can't remember what's called The Secret. This, I can't remember what his show is called. We had a long conversation. And at, at one point, Ben said, I feel that I follow my duty and my duty leaves me to love. And I said, gee, I've always lived exactly the other way around. I follow the love and the love teaches me my duty. And that in some ways is very much a Jew versus Christian point of view. And I think you both get to the same point. But you know, in Ephesians, we often like to talk about Ephesians where it says a woman should submit to the authority of her husband as if he were a uh, representative of Christ, and the husband should love his wife as if she were his own body, the way Christ loves the church. So you nourish and uh, and protect your own body. 
And the thing about that is, is the happiest people I know, the happiest marriages I know, happiest people I know are married. The happiest people I know have a marriage that looks like Ephesians. But I don't know if they did that by rule, if they said, this is the way we're going to live, or simply that's what love looks like between a man and a woman. It happens very naturally. It's not a question of bullying. Of course, you don't want to be a domineering, you know, I, you know, I, I love my wife. I don't want to beat her up or boss her around. I, but, but it does come to me that I, to be a, the leader of the family in that regard. And it's just something that kind of flows. But maybe maybe what, what Paul was saying in that is that if you, if you fake it, you should fake it till you make it. You should act that way until you flow into that natural love. So I look at the Daily Wire, all these different guys. They're very different. We're friends, but we're very different. And they all have good marriages. They all have solid marriages. And and I hear people say, well, that doesn't reflect society. And I think, well, do you want to be like us and have a good marriage and be one of the happy people in life? Or do you want to be part of society? And I understand the society is hostile. It is open. One of the things about this is you start to see the same sicknesses. In moments like this, where this moment of big transition, you start to see the same sicknesses on left and right. You have the left anti-Semitism. You have the right anti-Semitism. You have the left people attacking marriage because they want women in the workplace because that's what Karl Marx said. You've got to destroy the home in order to get the power where it belongs. And on the right, you have the anti-Semites because they think that somehow, you know, Christianity needs for them to hate Jesus' religion. So I look at all these different guys, and they all have good marriages. And I think, what's the catch? Well, there's this video making the rounds of sorority girls dancing in a gas station, I think in Austin, Texas. Let's play a little bit. They're dancing to rap music. Just play a couple of seconds of this. So, so on X, on X, some conservative said something like, "This is why uh, men don't like Western women." And then, of course, you know, everyone's going, "Well, what's wrong? They're just dancing. They're innocent. They're all this stuff. What's the harm?" And others were saying, "No, it's all sexualized, and rap music sucks." Which obviously that's true. But, but here's the thing. It's possible for these girls to be doing nothing wrong in our culture, but also for them to be demonstrating what the problem is. I don't condemn them for what they're doing. There's nothing in our culture that says they shouldn't be doing it, but they're not behaving like ladies. That's the thing. They are not behaving like ladies. Ladies contain themselves. If ladies clown around, they do it among themselves, not out on video you know, with everybody watching. They don't listen to songs with filthy words in them. They don't use filthy words in them. I'm not talking about Downton Abbey. I'm not talking about they should be walking around, you know, Lady Brotherton, Furthington the Seventh. You know, that's not what I'm talking about. We're Americans. We're much more loose and good. But still, still, you know, women, women, I always say that women shouldn't curse because most curse words dehumanize the body. They're meant to do that. They're meant to dehumanize the body. When you use the F word, you're talking about sex as if it were an animal act instead of a spiritual act. And I think women are the ones who pay the price for that. And that's why I think women should be careful about the language they use. But when I look at the Daily Wire, all these different people, what unites us is we're all married to ladies. And, and that's helped us become gentlemen, I think. And, and so the question for me is not marriage or not marriage. Because first of all, you have, that's about how your life goes. Do you meet the right person? Do you, can you afford to do it? Do you think you can do it? Have you got the right mindset for it? But it's really the question for me is what do you want to be? What do you want to be like? Because, see, the, the male-female nexus, the connection between men and women, can't be separated to one side. Oh, if women would only do this, then men would do this. If men would only do this, then women would do this. Women won't be ladies if men aren't gentlemen, and men won't be gentlemen if women aren't ladies. Why should they be? Why should men restrain the way they talk in front of women if women don't restrain the way they talk in front of men, and vice versa? There's no way to disconnect this. And a lot of conservative men, they say they want a trad girl, but they don't want to play by their trad rules. And I'm not talking about that make-believe trad where they dress up like it's, you know, Betty Crocker. I'm talking about, you know, they say things like, they, all, they talk about, oh, they're simps and alpha males. I don't think the people who talk like that know what an alpha male is. Let me just show you. I, I brought in like three scenes from three different movies. I'm just going to play one. This is from the Iger Sanction with Clint Eastwood. This is cut 10, guys. This is uh, from a, a movie with Clint Eastwood where he plays a kind of proto prototype for Indiana Jones. He's a professor who's an adventurer. Uh, this is cut 10, and he's a professor, and a woman comes in trying to get good grades from him. Dr. Hanlock, I just want to tell you how much I've really enjoyed your course. I've never felt this close to art before. How nice. But I have a problem. 
How terrible. Yeah, well, you see, if I don't keep my B average, I'm going to lose my scholarship. And I really don't think I'm going to do so well in your final exam. I mean, I've gained a whole new feeling about art. But, well, sometimes you can't always put your true feelings down on paper. How true. If there was anything I could do to get a better grade, I mean, I'd, I'd be willing to do anything. Anything at all, really. Do you realize the implications of that offer? Are you busy this evening? No. You live alone? Oh, uh, well, my roommate's gone for the week. Good. Ed, go on home. Break out the books and study your little ass off. <laughs> now, I could show you a lot of movies from the old days when alpha males acted like that. Because the first thing, you know, we always talk about an alpha male is dominant. The first thing an alpha male dominates is himself and his urges and his desires, and he acts in a way that is moral. When, you, I, when I look at the people that people call alpha males now, I see slobs. I see slobs. So you've got to decide, how do you want to live? And that's the life that will lead you into a good marriage. And all the statistics don't mean a damn thing at that point. If you're not living that way, you know, it's still a risk. It's still a risk. It's still a risk. But if you want that life where you get a home, where you get some, some uh, progeny, where you get to leave behind a legacy of human beings, if you want to become a man, who one of the things a man is, is a father, by the way, a husband and a father, you got to start with yourself. And that's true of women, too. And that's the only thing that I think, that I think that that overrides everything else. Because you, you are living your life. You're not living in the numbers. You're living your life. And so that's my point of view. Garbage in, garbage out. Our culture is garbage. Don't let it in. All right, here's a no-brainer, so it's perfect for my audience. If you, if you want to protect your kids from the leftist indoctrination that's rampant in the mainstream media, here's how you do it. Start a 14-day free trial to Bent Key, the new kids' entertainment app from The Daily Wire. Bent Key is the only streaming app that offers high-quality, family-friendly shows that reflect your values. Bent Key features amazing characters and timeless stories that will spark your kids' imagination and curiosity with hundreds of episodes that your kids will love and that you can trust. The new episodes streaming every Saturday morning. Remember Saturday morning cartoons? They're back. They're better than ever. Don't take my word for it. See for yourself. You can try Bent Key for free for 14 days. No catch, no gimmick, no hidden fees. Just awesome content that your kids will love and you can trust. All you have to do is use the code UNLOCK at bentkey.com and you'll get 14 days of unlimited access to Bent Key's world of adventure. Go to bentkey.com and use code UNLOCK at sign up to start your trial today. All right, Clavin clapbacks. Woo! Elon Musk is literally Hitler. Yeah! <laughs> All right, Clavin clapbacks, both with a K, both Clavin and clapbacks with a K at dailywire.com. Please write in and comment on the show and we will read it on the air if we can. Uh, Ernest says to the wisest man alive, I do have, that must be me, I guess. I do have a comment on your opinion on the beauty of women. Uh, he says, I, I was thinking about Sports Illustrated controversy. I completely agree that SI should go down in flames for putting a transgender on the swimsuit edition, but you and Jordan Peterson made comments about the plump edition that bother me. Applying standards of beauty to human beings destroys people's ability to discover what they think is attractive, and I believe it definitely leads to loneliness and lesbianism. If one is not close to the standards of attraction, what are they supposed to do for love? Well, it's a, it, it's a fair cop. I think what both Jordan and I were commenting on was the fact that there are standards of beauty. There actually are standards of beauty, just like there are standards of morality that we can't explain. I, I think the evolutionary things, oh, it looks healthy, she looks like she can bear, maybe maybe there's something of that, but we, you know, it's regularity and some kind of grace. I, who knows what it is? And as I've often said, if you fall in love with an ugly girl, she becomes pretty, pretty quickly. So, you know, it's it's just honesty. You have to speak. If we don't speak in truth, how do we even know ourselves? And how can we even do the right thing if we're not uh, talking about real life? From Diane, uh, she says, I'm interested in understanding your perspective on Ukraine. I believe we have a role to play in the world, but our country teetering on the edge of destruction is not doing anyone any good by remaining. So we're printing and sending billions of dollars to support Ukraine. Uh, but we've seen sufficient evidence to know that the money is going in the wrong places. Uh, yeah, you know, listen, what I said, and I will repeat it, is that any investment in war, 
right? You're always doing, war is always bad. Sometimes it's just, but it's always bad. So when you invest in war, you're making a guess on the future, what the future is going to be. And what I said was my guess, which may be wrong because I don't know what the future is going to be and nobody does, but my guess is that um, Putin, the Chinese, and the Iranians seem to be gathering forces together. Their main enemy is us, that we have to let them know that we're not going to mess around with them. I, you know, Ukraine is Ukraine. I agree with you. It's a corrupt, you know, corruptocrat state. But that's not the point. We're not fighting Ukraine. We're trying to humiliate Putin. We're trying to make him look bad. And we're trying to let the Chinese know that we're serious enough so that if they go into Taiwan, we'll stop them. And, and I think, you know, my guess is if we don't do that, we just encourage them, especially after the disastrous retreat from Afghanistan, which just humiliated us, and is why Putin would not have, Putin didn't go in there when Trump was president, you know, because Trump was a loon, you know, <laughs> Trump would have just, you know, he, he didn't know what Trump would do. He knows pretty much that Joe Biden's not going to do anything, and that's why Biden has to prove he will. And so I, that's my guess. My guess is we have to do that in order to stop them. My guess is just, you know, I, I've said this before, people always complain about Vietnam. I get it. Lots of, there's lots of stuff to complain about in Vietnam, but the Vietnam, Nam War kept the Chinese bottled up for 25 years because they looked at us and thought, these people are crazy. They'll fight over this swampland. We're not going to continue to extend ourselves. Now they're getting, uh, you know, um, now they're getting aggressive again. And these are the things you sort of have to do to keep people in place. I agree with everything you're saying, by the way, that we are too far in debt and that, you know, we're tottering and all this stuff. We have to take care of ourselves first. I still think that this investment may be worth it. And, you know, like I said, I'm, I'm guessing at the future. So are you. Either one of us could be wrong. Become a member today. We're going into member block. You do not want to miss it because otherwise, what do you got? You got clavenlessness. You know what that looks like. It's like a gigantic rock of blackness dropping down on top of you. Become a member today. Go to dailywire.com slash subscribe. Use code claven at checkout for two months free on all annual plans. You know how to spell it by golly. So become a member today. If you're not a member uh, bye. It's, it's clavenlessness time. I'm sorry. It's like an infinite darkness. But if you are, come over now to member block.